and so let us read that text together. I'll start at verse 16 of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. May God add a blessing to this short reading of his word this morning, which is so essential for our faith in Jesus Christ. Last week, we learned how the church, or as we learned from the scriptures, is the living God's household. We learned how the the church must never lose sight or focus of its fundamental mission. The fundamental mission, above all other secondary aspects of the church, is, and we discussed, to be a pillar in support of truth, as is recorded in the scriptures. And when we think about truth, it's a definitive in our text because it has a that in front of it. It's not a truth, it's the truth. And that means that this is God's truth about himself, about mankind, about eternity, about sin, about forgiveness, about how man can be made right with God through Jesus Christ. But the truth that we're to uphold and be a pillar of and to be a support of as a collective church in the community also branches out into many other areas, as does the Scriptures, because... It has a whole lot to do with morality and ethics and justice, with life and death, with relationships and family, with the past, the present and the future. All those things involve truth that God has spoken of. But it is also truth that deals with those big worldview questions that every one of us ask in one form or another during our lives Where did we come from? Where are we going? And what is the problem in our world? And what is the solution? God's truth answers those questions. And the church is to stand firm and support God's unchanging truth because he is what? He is the living and true God and his truth is steadfast, immovable, trustworthy and it's truth for all time and for all peoples. His truth never changes. And so this derails the modern idea that truth is in constant motion and can be whatever anyone wants it to be or that truth is relevant to different cultures and different situations. That is not so. That is the idea of the world. And as believers, as God's household, as the assembly of God's people, local churches, we are not to go down that road collectively or individually. Paul warns Timothy in the second letter, in chapter 4, verse 3 to 4, he says, he actually talks how this will happen, how things will go down that road. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, 
but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and listen to this, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But not only is God's truth in written form as in the Scriptures, probably the greatest truth came when God graced this world in the person of his son, right? Jesus was God's truth par excellence. God's truth in that what we're to uphold and support, it was revealed and lived out in the fullest degree in the words and works of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you want to know about truth, you look at Jesus Christ. You read about Jesus Christ. John also gave testimony of this and he said the law was given through Moses but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. John 1.17 And so that gives a brief summary of the, of the primary mission of the church that we looked at last week in that as the living God's household because that's who we are, that's what we are we are to be a pillar and support of his truth. But the danger is, like the Ephesian church, any church can be hijacked by secondary matters and lose sight of its primary purpose. And so we must at all costs keep the main thing the main thing and be God's pillar and support of truth. And we looked at several ways on how we can do that at the end of our message last week. But as well as a fundamental mission, the church also has a fundamental message. And so let's spend some time looking at this through Paul's reminder to Timothy as we see on the screen in verse 16. The fundamental message of the church. You know, some message, some churches are what we call confessional churches. You might have been in one, or you might be from one. And confessional churches put a lot of weight on certain creeds and, uh, uh, that succinctly state what they believe and, and what truths of Scripture are of paramount importance and not negotiable. So they write up these creeds and confessions. When we think about the word creed, it's a bit foreign to us, but it simply comes from the Latin word credo. It means I believe. I was interested. I think we sung repetitively three times. I believe, I believe, I believe this morning. It's almost like we were singing a creed. In our church background, which is, dare I say, mainly Baptistic, we have tended to shy away from creeds and confessions. And I think the tendency that's got to back off of citing creeds and confessions every time you come to church sort of style. The fear is that there will be a tendency to place these human written statements above Scripture itself. And so we have tended to back off from them. And so this has given non-confessional churches, of which we are, seeming license to make statements like, we have no creed but Christ. We have no creed but Scripture itself or our Scripture alone. And so that is kind of proudly banded forward. 
But ironically, these statements are creeds in themselves, right? It is what people hold to and what they believe. But in saying that, even in our church, we do have a written creed. We have a statement of faith tucked away on a website somewhere. Probably not many of you have read them. And I have a hard copy tucked away, hidden in my filing cabinet that I don't pull out very often. In other words, folks, let me say this, and I don't want to frighten you all here. I believe we do not cite often as we should what we believe and what the Bible teach as its fundamental message. There's room for that. The creeds and confessions arose, by the way, in early church history for a very good reason. They were penned out of the church's desire to be faithful to what Scripture itself taught. Whenever false teachers arose and false teaching appeared, those men who appealed to the Bible but twisted Scripture to suit their own purposes, what the early Christian church did, they defended this, the truth of God's Word by clearly articulating their scriptural convictions. And as you think about that, you say, my word, if there ever was a day that we need to have some carefully, succinctly written confessions of what we believe, it's today, right? Whether it's morality, whether it's ethics, whether it's faith, whether it's whatever, it's been attacked like... And and not only by those outside the church... Sad to say, those within the confessing church. And this is what happened. This is what was happening way back then. And so what the early church did, even in Paul's day and later, even post-biblical era, up to 300, 400, the early church refuted error with truth. And that's the right way to do it, right? Don't refute error by arguing against them. Apostle Paul never did it. He refuted error with truth. And that's what the early church did. They wrote this down with the most faithful language they could muster in accord with Scripture. And so in doing this, the early church and early churches clearly manifested itself as a pillar and support of God's truth. And here in Ephesus, that Timothy was the pastor of, at the church at Ephesus, here was a church that existed in a culture that was sexually degraded. It was a pagan society and false teachers had come into the church and were making their mark big time. And we've dealt with some of those other issues, those secondary issues in chapters 1 to 3 up to verse 14 and Paul goes on to deal with a whole lot of other secondary issues and and, and, and negative warnings from chapter 4 to 6. But here Paul returns to basics just like that illustration I gave you. That's why the Wallabies beat the Kiwis through the All Blacks a few weeks back that they've never done for years and years and years. It's because the Wallabies returned to basics. They started becoming basic rugby players, and they beat the day. And so here Paul returns to the basics of Christianity. He pushes aside for a moment all the secondary matters that might fluster the church, and he focused in on the fundamental mission and the fundamental message of the church, particularly here in verse 16. Because what Paul does here is he cites a creed, a Holy Spirit-inspired creed. Creed is verse 16. 
It's a six-line stanza of gospel truth that was most probably, according to many scholars, most probably sung as a hymn in the early church. By the way, that's a good way of learning theology too, right? We've sung some good songs here this morning that's reminded us of the truth of God's Word. That's why this church, by the way, chooses its songs carefully. A couple of the elders have that responsibility of choosing the songs carefully. We throw out the rubbish and only keep the good ones. Ones that are in a line and in accord with Scripture. And so in this one verse, 16, the Apostle Paul, what he does is gives us the very heart of that truth, the central fact around which everything else is built. Everything else is secondary kind of thing. And so here we have the crux of the matter. And so this verse contains the key truth of even the entire universe. Nothing is more important than this. It is the ultimate foundation of knowledge and of wisdom expressed in this ancient hymn from the early church. In a nutshell, this one verse encapsulates the fundamental message of the church. And we see it's all about who? It's all about one man, Jesus Christ. Even though his name is not mentioned, even in your, some of your translation, you will see that uh, verse, uh, part, into verse 16, we'll see that God, it says God who was revealed in the flesh. Actually, in the original, it's not God, it's not Theos, it's he. But the inference is very, very clear because as you read through, there's only one person who this points to, and that is Jesus Christ. So this hymn, this creed, if you like to call it, this piece of poetry, if you want, is about Jesus Christ. In other words, here is the fundamental message that we preach. It is the core of what we teach and preach and believe. So if you want to believe something, you believe in this one. This is what you need to believe. You know, Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 24, verse 46 to verse 47, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead and that repentance of, for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So preaching this message that centers around Christ is not new. Jesus himself even taught it about himself. The Apostle Peter, if you remember, if you look at his first message that he preached in the book of Acts, chapter 10, it's about this fundamental message. Paul did the same, and he emphasized it in 1 Corinthians 1.23. What did he do? We preach who? We preach Christ crucified. And again, he states in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he said to another church on another occasion in Galatians 6.14, May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified unto me and I unto the world. So here again in our text, Paul rehearses in this succinct six-line stanza that captures the essential truths about Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned that it possibly was a poem and more than likely it was sung as a hymn. And why I say that, for your interest, we can even see that by the way this is structured. And this strongly suggests that it was either put there, it was in the early church for repetition. Now whether Paul had already borrowed it, whether they were already singing it, or whether this was brand new from Paul's own heart as he was inspired by God to write it, we're not sure. But it seems to be that it was written for those to recite and quote together. Just have a look at the, have a look at the, have a look at the way it's structured. This is only one way. There are other ways. And um, 
We see the, the poetic structure of what we call parallelism, especially highlighted at the end of every line. He was revealed in the what? Flesh. The next line, he was vindicated in the spirit. And so the parallelism is between spirit, flesh and spirit. He was seen by angels and then proclaimed among the nations. And against, again, you have another parallelism between angels and nations. And finally, he's believed on in the world and then taken up into glory. So this is very poetic, and that gives us license to think that it was either sung or quoted as a poem. And... Um, it was used by Paul, can we say, to pull believers and help them sit on the same theological page. Common confession we have in our text. Common confession. Verse 16 says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Common confession that comes from the Greek word which simply means to say the same thing. That's what it means, to say the same thing. In other words, this is what we agree on. Our unanimous conviction is that great is the mystery of godliness. Even this statement, beginning with the word great, may well be a play on words because you know that that word, same word, was used big time in Ephesus. Remember, back in Acts chapter 19, what was the cry of the people? Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so it may well be a play on words to counteract and refute that. And so the mystery of godliness here is, by the way, not uh, a mystery that is secretive. Uh, it's not something mystical or, or unknown uh, like we might gain from the word mystery being used by itself. Um, that's not what it is here. Here the mystery of godliness is, is truth from God concerning his son Jesus Christ. It, it begins with his incarnation. How Jesus was born into the world as a man. And that through this man, God would bring about his redemptive purposes. And this was never seen before or known by man. But it was now revealed in Jesus Christ. It's also all about the way of salvation. This is another mystery of godliness. It's about the way of salvation. And how Jews and Gentiles would be brought together in one way through faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It's how sinners are declared righteous and how sinners are looked upon by God himself as godly or they become one with Jesus Christ. But primarily, primarily, the mystery of godliness in its purest form is seen in Jesus Christ alone, who is the hidden God, but now perfectly revealed. So this wonderful early church creed what it does, it gives us six truths about the Lord which should be the fundamental message of what we believe of any local church. We're going to just go through those briefly. First of all, he was revealed in the flesh. You see, the marvel of the incarnation is a fundamental truth that every Christian must hold firmly to and never renege on. You get a person that says, yes, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that Jesus was born... Uh, miraculously and there was a miraculous conception that God became man uh, you, can, you can put a cross beside his name we've got to work on him yet Okay, he's not there all cult groups 
and false teachers, those who are energized by Satan, will always attack the Christian faith at this point. They will deny this truth. And you get people like the JWs, the Mormons, the Scientology groups, the, even the, uh, the religion of Islam, they will deny that God was revealed in the flesh at the Incarnation. But the truth that we must preach and promote and cling to is this wonderful message. God took upon himself flesh. We celebrate this at Christmas time, right? But it's a truth that needs to be before us and that we celebrate every day. He was revealed in the flesh God eternal became man. What, a, what, a, what a, a wonderful truth that is. This word revealed does not mean, by the way, that he was created. So chase that idea out of mind of even there. It doesn't mean that he began or, 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 or he began to exist. It doesn't mean that. It means made visible. In other words, he, that is God, made himself visible. How? In the person of Jesus Christ. God became man at the incarnation. And although, Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says, and although he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of men. God was revealed in the man, the perfect man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. He took upon flesh, that is, he was made in the likeness of men and was found in appearance as a man. Philippians 2, 7 and 8 tell us. What a wonderful truth that we are called to cite and proclaim. Without wavering, he was revealed in the flesh. Secondly, he was vindicated in the spirit. You know, there's nothing worse than a fraud or someone claiming to be someone when they are not. Right? You might all know people. Sometimes it can be quite frightening and scary. Imagine going to a hospital and you're with some ailment and, and a person comes up and introduces himself as doctor, whoever, whoever, and I'll be taking care of you and you don't have to worry uh, because I've got everything under control. And then you discover he's not a doctor at all. <laughs> You'd be picking up your bed and taking off, right? It's happened in Australia too, by the way over and over again. I know it's happened in New Zealand, people pretending to be doctors and even treating patients. And so they're frauds. And what proves them to be frauds is not only the piece of paper that they may have fraudulently signed and got doctored up, but it is the work eventually shines through. It proves that they are frauds. Now, although many claim that Jesus is a fraud, Believers know that he was absolutely who he was claimed to be and what scriptures claimed that he was and is. We know that. But more than that, he's not who he is simply because we believe that. That's, that's just going down, okay, you believe that, so that's true for you, and I believe this, and so that's true for me. No, no, no. He's not only who he is because we believe it. He, believe, he is what he is because scripture has left on record vindication or proof of his true identity. And God is true and he never, is a, never lies and so scripture must be true, right? The four gospels for a start give a record that throughout his earthly ministry Christ was vindicated by the Spirit of God. 
This miracles and signs were performed by the power of the Spirit. We have that in Matthew 12 and verse 28. They give unmistakable evidence that Christ was all he claimed to be. Of course, the ultimate vindication of Jesus Christ took place when he was raised from the dead. Romans 1 verse 4 says, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit, capital S, of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is not a fraud. He was vindicated by the Spirit of God. But there is more. Today, God the Holy Spirit is still vindicating the resurrected Jesus Christ. You know how? In and through local churches like us here at NCC. I wonder if we ever thought about that. Every true believer is evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Who has wrought this change in me? The Spirit of God has brought about an unbelievable change where once we were dead in sin, but now we're alive to Christ. Our whole worldview has changed. Our hope has changed. Everything has changed. We see this, of course. It's not new. It's not only learnt by experience. We see this in John chapter 16 where we see the Holy Spirit's role is to what? It's to convict men and women of sin and of righteousness of Jesus Christ and the judgment of sin. That's what the Spirit of God role is doing and so folks we are recipients of the holy spirit's power how because he pointed us to where to a religion to a church no he pointed us to the only savior the resurrected jesus christ you see jesus christ was and is still being vindicated by the holy spirit through his action in regenerating sinners like ourselves Christ was seen of angels. When Jesus walked on earth, he was not only watched by men, you know. Sometimes he, it's, it would be good to... I've done a number of studies in angelology and it's really, really amazing. And it's something that we don't often get time to, to look at uh, as, as a church. But, he, but Jesus was the very... He was the centre of angelic interest and of their attention and their curiosity. He was the very centre of it. They wondered and marveled at his birth. They then announced it to Joseph, to Joseph and the shepherds, remember? In Philippians 2, verse 5 and 8, and in Hebrews 2, uh, chapter 9, we are told that he, he humbled himself and was made, what? Even lower than the angels so that he might taste death for every man. The angelic host, think about this, the angelic host watched on as their eternal creator was made lower than they were by being made in the likeness of men. What an awesome display of God's power and his grace and mercy as angels watched on curiously, attentively and interestingly. Angels ministered to him, by the way, at his temptation. Remember that? when he was being tempted in the wilderness. He, and they strengthened him at his, at his darkest hour in the Garden of Gethsemane. At his death and at his glorious resurrection, angels were present observing this amazing action of divine love and power. Remember how an angel rolled away 
a stone of his tomb. Angels appeared to the women and affirmed that Jesus has arisen and they said, he is not here, he is risen. It was angels that said that. Angels were present at his ascension. Remember? Why stand you gazing up and looking into heaven? The same Jesus as you've seen him go will come in like manner as you've seen him go. All this is to say from beginning to end of Jesus' life on earth, angels were involved, which shows this, that God fully approved of the person of his beloved son. And yet today, angels also have a focus. They haven't given up. They're not just up there staring at Jesus seated at the right hand of God. You know who their focus of attention is on now? Christ's bride, the church, his body. It's the living God's household, like us here at NCC, that has become the center stage of angelic observation. I wonder if we've ever thought about that. That right now, angels are curiously and interestingly and attentively watching. Paul says in Ephesians 3.10 that God's wisdom, his redemptive plan is now being made known by the church. For what? And why? This is what it says. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers, and listen to this, and the authorities in heavenly places. Who's that? Angels. And might I say, good angels and bad angels, because he's both. But that's another story. And so how awesome is that? The living God is using the church. He's using us here. He's using this little group of people who belong to New Community Church to teach angels concerning himself. Wow. Jesus Christ is now his bride. And he uses his bride, uh, he uses angels to watch his bride to teach them about himself. We're being observed. Okay, and to the next one we see Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. We've sung about this this morning. And, um, and the living God's household must never forget that. We must never forget that before Christ ascended to heaven, he commanded his disciples to what? You know this verse well, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. He commanded, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But more specifically, we get really down to it here when we come to Acts. After Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit had come um, at Pentecost, we see in Acts 1 verse 8 how all this will begin. When Jesus told them, he said, this is what's going to happen after I'm gone. He says, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. In other words, no country, no race, no ethnic group, no tribe or people group is to be left out from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Nothing in the local assembly, and let's bring it right down to here, nothing in the local assembly, nothing in God's household must be a hindrance to the message of Jesus to the nations, folks. Nothing. Why? Because he is the saviour of the whole world, according to John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God is a missional God and he has his people all over the world and belonging to every different people group. And so the ongoing proclamation of the gospel, you know what? It's our responsibility. This is truth that we must not only support and uphold but it's something that we must be engaged in whatever we can and however we can in proclaiming this truth. Next, Jesus was believed on in the world. Now, we know this happened, right? We know this happened soon after Jesus ascended back to heaven. What happened? The church was born. And um, there was a major influx of people who believed I think it was the first public preaching of the, of the gospel. There were, there were 3,000 people came to the Lord, were saved, Acts 2.41. And then in the days that followed, thousands more believed on him. So God's plan in, uh, in Christ to reach the world began reaching Jews first, and then the Samaritans, and you remember the stories in the, in the book of Acts, and then it went to an Ethiopian and then Cornelius and then across the Gentile world by Paul mainly and his team. Right down to us here today. The application here is simple. As it was then, so it is to be until the Lord comes. The local church, like the New Testament church, must preach the same fundamental message. Because you know why? Because it's only through this, it's only through the preaching of the message, it's only through telling others of the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to Acts 13 48, that as many has been appointed to eternal life, believed. So we must preach. Because God has got his people out there to come to him through our proclamation. Jesus Christ was taken up to glory. This is our, our last one. When Jesus was taken up to heaven at his ascension, this marked the end of the Lord's personal earthly ministry and witness. He was taken up in glory. In other words, he was caught up in the clouds. He was lifted up, we're told. It's amazing. Hardly had the cruel words died of crucify him, crucify him. Hardly had that been stifled and finished when the gates of heaven were opened wide to receive back his victorious king. The resounding echoes of 10,000 times 10,000 in jubilant praise Worthy is the Lamb. It filled the courts of heaven. Truly, he was taken up in glory, right? And yet, on the other hand, his ministry on earth is not yet finished. Really, at his ascension, his work had only begun. 
Only just begun when he was received up in glory. Why is that? Because it's the church that continues on the witnessing and teaching of the resurrected Lord who is the head of the body and God blessed forever. The greatest great commission in Matthew 28, which we read, and the beginning of, of, of the work of the Holy Spirit, as we see in Acts 1.8, is continuing. This gospel work is continuing to bring in a harvest of sinners to the only Saviour, Jesus Christ. So really, at his ascension, the work of Jesus Christ on earth had only just begun. The living God's household had not yet finished its work yet, folks. We have not yet finished our work. The church, our church's mission is not yet over. And its message, the fundamental message, must not, must never be silenced. Our day is not yet finished. For why? Because the Lord is still on the throne and we are still here to be his witnesses, ambassadors, until our day is done. And so we're here because the Lord has unfinished business. And he's using us as his business partners, can I say, to get the job done. Because it's only when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, verse 4. That will be the day when our work is done. Oh, that the living God's household, we here as a church, we here as an assembly of God's people may know and appreciate more and more the fundamental mission to be God's pillar in support of truth, His truth. But also, as the living God's household, may we never lose sight of our fundamental message that we've been given to preach Jesus Christ as we have seen in this six-line stanza by way of example. I want to finish quoting a story I read in a commentary that I was using. And the story goes like this. There was once an old church in England and a sign on the front of the building read, We Preach Christ Crucified. After a time, as it often does in England, Ivy grew up and obscured the last word and the motto on the church now read we preach Christ. The ivy grew some more and the motto read we preach. Finally the ivy covered the entire sign and the church died. Such is the fate of any church that fails to carry out its mission in the world. May God add a blessing to his word this morning. Shall we pray? Our gracious God, we bow before you. And Lord, we feel so inadequate when we know your mission and we know your message so fluently and so well, we can articulate it but Lord, it seems to have such little effect. But Lord, help us not to be focused on ourselves, but help us to understand it's not about us, it's all about you. We have all the resources that we need in ourselves personally and collectively as an assembly, 
to perform the work which you have given us. Help us to see the mission of the church is to be a pillar in support of truth which requires us of course just to study and to know the truth that we are to support and to be able to refute error that is rampant in our culture and society today, refute it with truth whether it be in the workplace whether it be in our homes or whatever platform that may be Help us to be men and women of God who will stand firm for your truth. And also coinciding with that, Lord, help us to see that we need to give people something to believe. But not only something to give people someone to believe in, and that is Jesus Christ and him alone. People need a saviour. And so, Lord, help us in our gospel presentation, in our words spoken here or there, may your word be powerful. For, Father, we long to see people saved and come to a knowledge of your truth. So, Father, take us from this place. Watch over us. Care for us in the week that we are entering. And may we be drawn closer to you as we study your word and pray. These things we'd ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.